The Start On Demand. demand. Why don't we start this half hour with a conversation about how Canadians feel about where they live and their connection to the rest of the country. Right. Do you identify as a Manitoban first, then Canadian? Or is that Winnipegger? I mean, where do you lie in that whole debate? And how do you feel about how connected or different Western Canada might be from the folks in Ottawa? It's, of course, been a year of divide. For many Canadian premiers who are at odds with the Prime Minister, we had Brian Pallister last week announcing that Manitoba is bailing on Ottawa's carbon tax plan. Saskatchewan's premier has been against it since day one. Alberta's premier maintains it's not on board with that plan, while the Trans Mountain Pipeline is in limbo. And for many, it's brought up that phrase, Western alienation. But are people on the prairies really feeling left out? While a new poll by Ipsos suggests Western Canadians definitely feel more connected to their provinces than they do to Canada as a whole. Kyle Braid is with Ipsos and joins us on this Thanksgiving morning from BC. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, talk us through some of the numbers. From what I'm reading, 76% feel there is a unique Western Canadian identity. So three quarters of those polled feel they really more have those roots to Western Canada. Is that so different than it was in years past? Well, I mean, it is interesting. 76% say, yeah, I think there's something called uh, a Western identity. They feel like Western Canada is in some way unique compared to the rest of the country. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that they put their you know, Western identity or their province ahead of their uh, allegiance or their uh, identity with the country. And more importantly, we've been tracking these numbers all the way back to 1997, so 20 years ago, and really nothing has changed in in that. It was 68% uh, in Western Canada in uh, 1997. It's 76% now identify as uh, or, or think there's a unique Western Canadian identity. Not exactly a, a, a huge shift. Uh, in Manitoba, Manitobans are the least likely to think there is a unique Western uh, Canadian identity, but still there it's 67%. So two-thirds of Manitobans think there's something unique about the West. But that number hasn't changed that much from 1997 either when it was 61% in Manitoba. So if the uh, number of people who feel this way hasn't changed, is there a genuine divide? You know, uh, trends and feelings may wane and they may meander, but... is this a genuine, I don't know if the word is problem, concern? What word would you give it, Kyle? Just a, a state of being? Well, certainly I would say it's, it's a concern and there's an issue. I mean, you laid out uh, the number of concerns across Western Canada with the federal government and, and things that are happening in the country. And when we did this poll, Manitoba hadn't yet pulled itself out of the, uh, the, the carbon tax deal. So add Manitoba to a list of every province who now has grievances with the, uh, the federal government. So there is a problem. And if you look at the raw numbers, I mean, it says there's a problem. Only 19% of folks in Western Canada, only a quarter of Manitobans think, you know, their views are adequately represented in Ottawa. Uh, only about half of Western Canadians thinks that their province is getting its fair share from Confederation. Four in ten Manitobans uh, thinking that. Uh, sorry, saying half saying they uh, they don't get their fair share. Only forty percent of Manitobans. But those numbers haven't shifted from two thousand and one or nineteen ninety seven. In fact, they haven't changed at all. Uh, which suggests, as you say, there are ebbs and flows in terms of how the provinces feel about their place in Confederation and their views of the representation in Ottawa. But the more things change, really, the more they stay the same. Manitobans, 
And I, as a Manitoban at the time, can certainly remember, you know, the late 80s and the CF-18 deal. We can all remember, you know, Meech Lake and the Charlottetown Accord and different things that come up. And really, our polling shows that, you know, while there are issues going on today, there's always been issues. And, and, and the views and the connection to the country as a whole, while there is angst and concern, you know, it's not like we have people who say, you know, I feel less committed to Canada than I did before or, you know, think that uh, we'd be better off if we separated from Canada. There are some people who say that, but those numbers haven't shifted at all in the last 20 years. You could look at it a number of ways. You know, we had the Prime Minister on the show when he visited Winnipeg last month and we asked him, are you feeling the chill when you come to Western Canada? Because there were, there all are all these issues that are really concerning to many people on the prairies. You could argue that, you know, it's not that bad because the numbers haven't changed, but then the numbers aren't changing. So we're not. Are, you could argue we're not making any inroads with uniting people more and making them feel like they do have that say in Ottawa. Absolutely. I think that's a that's a fair perspective to have, especially, you know, when you think about 20 years ago to versus today, Western Canada really has grown in importance. I mean, that's where the population has been growing the most. So we do have more seats and more representation than we did before. And certainly uh, the Western Canadian economy uh, it makes up a much larger percentage share of the uh, the Canadian economy. The Western uh, Canada is looking across the Pacific and there's opportunities there. And that's where, you know, sort of opportunities for growth are. So the strength of Western Canada has grown. And yet, despite that, Perhaps it's not so good that we still don't feel like we're getting our fair share and we don't feel like we're adequately represented in Ottawa. We're talking to Kyle Braid with Ipsos on some new polling that shows Western Canadians definitely feel more connected to their own provinces than they do to Canada as a whole. I'm, I'm not sure if you, I know you have a lot of Manitoba numbers on you, Kyle. I'd also wonder what, if that feeling shifts in Alberta, is it a bit higher there? Because they certainly have been feeling some pain in recent months. Well, Alberta certainly does uh, stand out in these numbers from others. So in terms of not getting its fair share from Confederation, that number is 62% of Albertans say that versus uh, 49% in the uh, rest of the West and 40% Manitoba. So that's a big a big difference. And that number in Alberta is up 13 points from where it was in 2001. Similarly, you know, more Albertans than in 2001 uh, say that, uh, you know, they feel less commitment to Canada than they did before. More say that they would be better off if their uh, province separated from Canada. But still, even though there has been a shift in those numbers, it's still only a third of Albertans who say they feel less committed to Canada than they did before, and only a quarter who say that their province would be better off if it separated from Canada. So while some might crank those numbers up and say that they're alarming and you know show something's wrong with Confederation, even in Alberta where people are not happy about a number of things that are going on. It's still only, you know, a quarter who think, you know, some other option would be better than than the current confederation. Kyle, we want to thank you for getting up early on this Thanksgiving Monday to dissect these numbers along with us this morning on 680 CJOB. Thanks so much. No problem. Kyle Raid with Ipsos going over the numbers, and you can uh, go to globalnews.ca and you can uh, see a little bit more of the information that we were discussing from Ipsos, this exclusive poll for us, Loren. I've always been fascinated by the fact that uh, just in terms of our travel patterns and who we interact with most, 
Uh, have you heard of Cascadia and the idea of Cascadia mm-hmm. and the idea of British Columbia and, and uh, Oregon and Washington kind of breaking off to become their own sort mm-hmm. of part of the world? And then Alberta got dragged into that, and, and why not? I mean, uh, y- you need oil, <laughs> so you might as Gotta well bring them with you. Bring yeah. along a, a, a powerful uh, partner in an endeavor like that. But it, it seems as though we have, for as connected as as you can be with folks in Saskatchewan here in Manitoba, we seem to almost have a stronger connection with our friends in North Dakota and Minnesota. I know in terms of my travel patterns, I spend far more time going north-south, either in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or even to the Midwest, to uh, Kansas City on holidays or Chicago than I do even, and I used to live in Calgary and, and in British Columbia, don't spend nearly as much time years later going out west as they do to the south. Oh, we and our family were the opposite. We all always like yearly trips out west, long drives, train rides, ski trips and all the rest. And so I feel super connected to Alberta and BC and I, I never like talk of any province considering or even just, you know, throwing out that grenade into the room about separation. You know, I'm not a fan of that. I think we're we're unique and we're different and we don't need to love what everybody's doing in Ottawa or, or get along or think we're all the same. That's mm-hmm. what's so great about Canada. I mean, we're so uniquely different from you can go two hours from now and find a whole other opinion, right? And I love that. So um, the fact that the numbers haven't changed, I don't know. You could look at that and say, oh, geez, like, shouldn't we have made some inroads? Or maybe we're just always going to feel a little bit at odds with Ottawa. I think you might be right. Uh, bang on on that point. We want to start this hour with a conversation about Alzheimer's and what you could do, put your brain to work for those that are struggling with their, with the, with, with their brain, with their gray matter in the form of Alzheimer's disease, Loren. What you can do to maybe slow things down or help things out. And this is what we're talking about it today because this week on Wednesday is the 10th annual trivia challenge for the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. And joining us on the phone now is its event manager, Allison Woodward. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's Allison, uh, yeah, from Alzheimer's Society. Perfect. Well, we've got you live now on the air, Allison, and we just wanted to chat about the idea that, uh, you know, first, let's just start at the beginning. If I'm somebody living with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's or I have a family member who is, what is the importance of, we always hear the crossword puzzles or the trivia or the, you know, getting your brain moving and working? Uh, yeah, so it's extremely important. Um, we definitely talk about how uh, just general health, general brain health is one of the main things that you can do um, or preventative measure um, against uh, dementia. So uh, mainly things like just staying active. So it maintains your overall health, reduces stress, um, but also staying connected. So participating in meaningful social activities out in the community. Um, And like you said, staying engaged cognitively. So activities like word puzzles, uh, memory games, but also another big thing is learning new activities or learning a new skill. Uh, So continuously um, uh, using your cognitive skills. So yeah, lots of things you can do, uh, but uh, basically just your general health, uh, staying connected with the community um, and staying active. And and Allison, for as important as it may be to to do all those things you outlined to keep your brain busy, that socialization part is absolutely critical. Oh, totally, totally. Um, staying connected with friends and family, um, 
And it's also kind of reduces stigma as well. So people who may show signs of dementia or have dementia, if they're out in the community um, socializing with people but maintaining those relationships, uh, people still see them as who they are. They're not someone with dementia. They're still their family member. They're still their friend. So super important to stay out in the community for sure and keep social. We're not necessarily talking about preventing the onset of, say, dementia or Alzheimer's, but the idea that these things can help um, slow it down or adjust as you move forward with the disease. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we can't for sure say uh, they're preventative, um, but uh, promoting your general health is one of the best things you could do. So Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba does a lot of incredible work, not only in terms of awareness, but helping families, because if there's a disease um, that, that affects more people outside of the individual who's afflicted with this nasty disease, Alzheimer's affects everyone that, that that individual comes into contact with. And so the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba does such an incredible job of, of being a resource for those that are trying na- to navigate this new reality. Exactly. And actually, uh, the new statistic is that 56% of Manitobans have a family member or close friend with the disease. Um, and it's only growing as the baby boomer generation gets older. So that's half the province um, really dealing with that, right? That's an incredible number, Alison. Exactly, Allison. exactly. Yeah, and if you don't, you know, have a, a family member, obviously you know someone who does. And the statistics, uh, another startling statistic that I know from my friend uh, and uh, researcher at St. Bonavis Hospital uh, and, and the Albrechtson Research Centre, ben, Benedict Albenzi, is uh, something like uh, if you live past 80, it's, it's 50-50 that you're going to end up with Alzheimer's. Wow, yeah, and I don't know the 100% um, to speak on that, uh, but yeah, it's pretty pretty drastic. Okay, so what we're doing this morning is we brought you on here because you're doing an incredible event. It's this annual event. It's the 10th annual Trivia Challenge. It's coming up Wednesday night, 6.30 till 10.30 p.m. at the Club Region Event Centre. I know that this event sells out on a regular basis. Are you already sold out, Allison? Uh, we're not sold out. We still have some space left. Um, right now, we have about 230 people coming out, so it's a huge event. Uh, but we still have a few tables left. Uh, so basically, teams of 10 compete in 10 rounds. Uh, so if you have a group of 10, you can come out. Uh, we have tons of different categories. So for everybody, um, we have things like pop culture, current events. Uh, we have a music audio round, uh, world history, TV and movies. Uh, but yeah, definitely room left. And we have like family and friends teams that come out, but we also have a lot of company teams. Uh, you know, it's a great team building activity. So they get a bunch of coworkers together to come out. And yeah, everyone uh, participates for title grand champion. Uh, we have our coveted travel mug trophies. You can take them around all year and uh, brag about uh, your skills. Um, but yeah, and all money goes towards the Alzheimer's Society of Manitoba. So all funds raised stay in the province. Oh, it's a great cause. I know in my family, uh, especially at Christmas time, if we ever pull out any sort of trivia game, we have one we play called Budget Taboo because I don't think we could afford the board. So we just kind of made up our home with paper. Nice. But, but it gets super competitive. Like we make, like we divide up in teams, girls versus boys. So I'm curious, in the room uh, on Wednesday night, do you have some of that hyper competitive folks who really, really want to win? I mean, they want to help for a good cause, but they're into it too. 
Exactly. Yeah, I think most people, they um, keep it pretty calm, but there are a few times when we get some challenges with the questions. So people are very, they get serious about it, but it's still fun. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any examples? Uh, Can you put us to the test or what kind of things might we get asked that you may get stumped on? Um, So... I'm not sure what you guys would get stumped on. Everyone, it's surprising, hey, like how much people know. Um, but I do have a couple here I can give you. Oh, no. Did you know um, this was going to happen? No, I just thought I'd try it now. Oh. I'm feeling the competitive edge <laughs> But now. you said you said you like it, but you're not very good at well, it. Well, let's find out. All right, let's find we'll out. We'll see this one. Um, let's do, okay, this is in our medical trivia. So this is from last year. Um, sometimes called the royal disease. This genetic disorder affected some members of the British, Spanish, Russian, and German royal families, including the son of Tsar Nicholas. What is this disease called? Scurvy. No, it starts with an H. Starts with an H. Hemophilia. Oh, boy. Like, I was... (laughs) Had nothing. Well, oh, and a hemophilia is a blood disease, so royal blood. So there you yes, go. You see, it kind of works yeah. out. Mm-hmm. We were joking because we were talking about scurvy this morning and, right. and why cranberries, Allison, can help you know with your low vitamin levels. So that's that was our first guess. Yeah. So scurvy was go. on the mind. <laughs> and uh, you have you got one more for us, Allison? I do. Um, okay, this is uh, pop culture. All right. So this, and it's pretty recent actually. So this toy was marketed as an antidote for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, and autism. Fidget spinner. So it was banned. There you go. Sorry, yeah, I'm not even let you finish. I, I so wanted to be right on that one, right? Is that? I know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so banned in some classrooms for being too disruptive. <laughs> well, I know it's my ironic, kids had right? them and I quickly took them away. They are, I, I can see that they have a good, like a, a great, um, good for some people who need them for sure. But boy, they... That's all they were doing. Just for hours even that on hum, end. like that that spin in your fingers, was a little bit therapeutic, somewhat. Okay, Al, uh, we got to let you run here, Allison. But we got to let you know. Uh, we got to let our listeners know, rather. How do they get involved if they want to jump all over this and the handful of spots you've got left? For sure. So, main way, easiest way, just head over to our website. So, alzheimer.mb.ca. And just follow the Trivia Challenge quick link, and uh, it'll tell you exactly how to register from there. All right. Well, uh, if anybody wants Lorraine and I on their team, uh, they're very desperate at this point. (laughs) Allison Woodward, thank you for this. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Alzheimer.mb.ca for more details, as Allison Woodward was just telling us. Yeah, so this happened last night. That's Joan Jett on guitar. Dave Grohl on drums. Pat Smear on guitar. And uh, Krista Novoselic. They are the surviving members of Nirvana. They got together at CalFest in San Bernardino, California last night. Wow. Pretty powerful stuff. Oh, you want to talk? No, I, I just want to listen. Let's listen. So apparently they have gotten back together on a few occasions over the years. In but, particular at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right. induction, right? But, they, but this is a real rarity. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, it's all over the internet. It's blowing up right now all over Twitter. And uh, you can check out Rolling Stone magazine. Just uh, Google uh, Foo Fighters uh, or uh, just do Nirvana reunion, Joan Jett. You'll get the video. It's uh, spectacular if you're into this kind of stuff. So here's a question for you. Yeah. Once Thanksgiving is over, are you ready to move on and talk about Halloween? Like today? Are we good to go? Yes. Yeah, I am. Well, yes. Like I don't want to go. I don't want to go costume shopping before Thanksgiving. I but the pumpkin can be out, and the jack o' lantern decorating can get done. I yeah. feel like it's Halloween time now. Okay. Especially because it's cooler out. It's like Halloween temperatures. So. Yeah, because usually we don't get our first snow until Halloween. But uh, here we are. We can't lament. But uh, special way to uh, celebrate with our friends at Danilvert. That's why we have Charlene Van Buchenhout in house with us to speak about a really cool event. You guys did this last year. Um, right. Was it just called Dracula? Tell me a little bit what, what happened last year and what we're doing this year For sure. at the museum. Great. Uh, so last year we did, um, we piloted our Dracula Unearthed uh, program. So that was, we had you go inside the museum and basically step inside Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. So uh, we had journal entries and some audio conversations that you listen to and you walk around the museum in the dark with a flashlight and search out um, evidence of vampires in uh, Downward Museum. And this works at the museum because it's a Victorian-era type house. Exactly. It sort of has a different feel and look to yeah. it. Bram Stoker's Dracula was written in, in 1897, I think it was re- released. So it's very Victorian. It's got all of the new technology that we have um, exhibited in the house. And so we just uh, replaced some of the artifacts with some of our props. And so you can touch some of the things. So this year... We have um, more rooms to uh, explore. So last year we had um, certain rooms blocked off, but this year we've got a few clues hidden around the house so that if you find these clues, you can have access to some of these rooms, go inside, do a little activity, and get maybe a surprise. So it's not a jump scare house, but there's lots of like fun things to discover. Charlene, you have really taken this to a whole other level. I mean, this was a, for, for those that don't know, and we know because you've been coming on the program with uh, Brett and I for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. For those that don't know Dolnivert, uh, tell us uh, about the history of the of the home and, and why you, you have been going to these extraordinary lengths to engage the public in a way that has never been done before at that museum? Well, it's great to um, look, be able to look at museums in different ways. So um, one way is to look at it through its uh, history. So uh, it was built in 1895 as the home of Sir Hugh John MacDonald. Sir Hugh John MacDonald and his family lived there um, 1895 to about 1929. And um, he was uh, the Manitoba premier for about 10 months. He was a lawyer. He was the police magistrate. And you'll recognize his name, um, as the namesake for the Hugh John McDonald School, as well as McDonald Youth Services. So he's very uh, passionate about um, the youth in our city. And so we've preserved this home over time, and you can kind of really step back into time. As soon as you step into the house, it's like going back, right back into 1895. The extensive effort of the restoration in the uh, 70s was um, uh, quite thorough. And so it's packed full of Victorian artifacts, and it's just really like stepping back in time. It's so many, you know, um, I took the kids on the uh, Prairie Dog Central a few months ago and going up, they had the, uh, an old home in Grosse Isle, 
And just the things you hear from kids, like they, everything was like, what is that? What <laughs> is that? Because it was so beyond, you know, the old phones or the music mm. players or spinning wheels or, you know, things that all the different things you had to do just to survive and how technology has changed. Just oh, really my cool goodness. To see. Yeah, definitely. Now kids coming through are farther removed from uh, that older technology. So it's more exciting to be. Do you know what this is? <laughs> it plays records. Now you say the Dracula uh, night, which uh, starts October 11th, runs until the 28th, Dracula revamped or unearthed, yep. revamped. It's revamped. It's, you're walking through the house at dark, so you say it's not a jump out and scare you kind of thing, but I, I can only imagine that because you have this older house and creaks in the floor mm-hmm. and your imagination would... Run a little bit if you're walking around in the dark. Exactly. Just walking through the darkness in that house is going to do it for you, I think. Um, and we've uh, cut down the numbers. So last year we had 20 people um, in the house and now we have 16. So we want more and there's more rooms. So there's more chances to be alone in the dark and experience the house um, at night. It's very different. Have you ever, sorry, Greg, but have you ever felt a little bit nervous there at night? Um, Every once in a while I look over my shoulder. I haven't seen anything. I asked you if it was haunted. (laughs) Is it haunted? Um, Some people really do believe it's haunted and have seen things. Um, I haven't personally. Uh, But we did spend a night back in September um, for writers for the Writers Festival. And myself stayed overnight at Delvert Museum um, for the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And uh, they, were, they were challenged with writing a ghost or horror story um, based on Delvert, just spending there, uh, having the night there. Um, so we spent the night, and it was, apart from being uncomfortable for me, <laughs> just because it was um, sleeping on the floor. But uh, I don't know. I think the writers came up with some good stuff, and actually we're having a reading of those stories on Halloween night. Oh, cool. oh fantastic. Yeah. This is great. Now, is this suitable for kids, or should I be just coming uh, adults only? Um, uh, for the Halloween night well, or for, for everything? Yeah, for everything. Well, for Dracula Unearthed, we say 18 and up. Uh, we will let in maybe a mature, savvy uh, 16, 17-year-old. Um, but we do have a family-friendly uh, vampire hunt every weekend. You can do a very maybe not too scary uh version of the Dracula Unearthed with your kids. And they can come and dress up and we'll have a treat for them at the end. Uh, and the Fright Night or the the... The writer's night. Um, I think that's uh, come if you dare. <laughs> you can bring your kids if you want, but I don't know how scary these stories are. Well, that's what the website says. Only 16 brave souls at one time enter if you dare. So she's telling us it's not scary, but it sounds a little like I, I can see how you would, you know, you someone starts talking and telling a story. It's no different than when you're around the campfire. That's right. And you start to just imagine all well, those and scenarios. To be, and to be amongst the history, right? And mm-hmm. and the timing is all exactly right. And that's the, right. And the era. So it's just incredible. And uh, once again, congratulations, Charlene, for what you're doing to uh, keep this museum and not only just keep it relevant, but to make it more accessible and interactive for folks because uh, our history is so fascinating in this part of the world. And I think sometimes we we forget just how fascinating it is. That's right. And uh, looking at it in a couple of different ways makes you more interested to learn more about it. So I think that's... That's what we have to do. So well, tickets are on sale now then? That's right. Uh, you can get tickets at our website, downvertmuseum.ca, or you can call 943-2835. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you so much. Seen any birds flying strangely out there? There's a reason. 
I will everybody said <laughs> about the bird. Well, any excuse we can take to invite Trevor Sluice from the Preferred Perch on to 680 CJOB, we jump all over it. Uh, Sherry, good morning and happy Thanksgiving to you. Good morning and happy Thanksgiving to you guys as well. Uh, now, uh, cranberries, uh, your cranberry, fresh, jelly, or none at all? What, what's what's your take on that with, with the dinner? I'm a no. Like none at all? No. I agree. I just don't get it. It doesn't work for me at all. Well, okay. Uh, well, I would consider a cranberry dessert, but not with my meal. Not at all. Cranberry cocktail, perhaps? Oh, I could handle that, perhaps. <laughs> okay. We'll go with that. Here's where we're bugging you on this holiday Monday. More birds are getting drunk in a Minnesota town, and police are issuing a warning <laughs> to residents. Have you seen this? I did. <laughs> this is... You know, obviously this time it made it to the news, but it is unfortunately a common occurrence. Okay. But this season has made it a little different. So what do you mean common occurrence? Like, am I am I driving home today and if I see a bird, I should maybe question whether or not it's under the influence? <laughs> this can happen. It, it does happen every year, but what makes this year different is, um, so what happens with the berries is once there is a first frost, the sugars in the berries turn, you know, they ferment and turn to alcohol. And then, of course, when the birds ingest them, they are susceptible to that alcohol. But this year, what's happening is we are getting, we had frost, and then it warmed up, and then we had frost, and then it warmed up. And that creates yeast as well in the berries. So now we've got a full-blown fermentation going on there. So it's making the berries even more potent with their alcohol than they would normally be in a normal season where they would just freeze, have the alcohol that is normally in it, and that would be that. So, so the, the basically the wine is growing on the vine. Exactly, and it's a good batch this year. No, we're, <laughs> we're laughing at it, but it can have some consequences, right? Like the birds are, if like anyone, if you're slightly impaired or feeling tipsy, you can hurt yourself. So the birds are flying into windows, and I hear this is happening in the Yukon as well, or has happened there before. Um, it, it, it consequences is. they don't see as well. Is that possible, or they just are swaying while they fly? It's that typical, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, I'm drunk symptoms, so they basically can't coordinate their flight, just like when we see our friends staggering, they're staggering in the air. Um, they can't use their feet properly to even perch or, or walk. Um, I've seen birds where they're on the ground and their wings are kind of out to the side and they're balancing on their wings on the ground because they're just too drunk to even sit upright. So it definitely is a problem in them flying into uh, windows. Flying, They'll even just fly into walls. They'll fly into cars and parking lots. So it, it really is something where they're, they're totally out of sorts because they are fully drunk. Well, I was in the so, Best Buy across from Polo Park yesterday, and I came out, and there was a lady standing there in front of the sliding door. Stop, stop. And 
there was a tiny little bird, and I'd never seen this one before, Sherry. Should have taken a picture. It was gray and it had like yellow in its yes. uh, head. What, what kind of bird is that? So that would have been a warbler. Now, the warblers are really suffering right now. Last week, uh, around Thursday, we had that major snow day that nobody enjoyed. And the warblers are a very small bird that migrates to South America. And this weather it should not be here now, obviously. So that really took a toll on the warblers who are insect-eating birds. So they were delirious with the moisture out there, the temperature, and they were. we had so many calls that day of people finding warblers all over around buildings because they were just so disoriented from the temperatures and the windows. It's fascinating so, what that shift in temperature. I mean, we complain about the bad drive or not wanting to pull our winter clothes out, but there's all these species. I was even thinking of the deer the other day with the fields that they normally snack on or the fallen grain were covered in snow. Now it's gone, but exactly. it does have an impact on so much wildlife. It does. And interestingly, we have a, a bird here called waxwing. We get cedar waxwings and bohemian waxwings, and they are huge consumers of berries. That is their main diet. So nature gave them a larger liver to actually be able to deal with al- with alcohol-induced berries. So it's interesting. These birds still can get drunk, but they don't necessarily suffered to the degree that other birds would if they ate those berries. So some birds really are designed to tolerate that alcohol. So, Oh, go ahead, Sherry. I was just going to say in Australia, they have a a problem there as well. And they actually did tests on birds and they they found that these finches had blood alcohol levels of 0.05 to 0.08. So they were over the driving limit. So they were not able to fly. So, so if, if I see one of these birds, say, on the ground, or I notice some behavior, you mentioned you got called. I mean, what can I do? If I'm, if I'm worried someone is drunk flying or they've already hurt themselves, like more, more to the point, what do I do? Well, if they are just drunk, what you can do is just get a box and put them into it till they recover from, from being drunk and then let them go. But if they are injured, then you definitely want to arrange to get them to the Wildlife Haven. That's our premier wildlife rehab hospital. Um, you can call them or you can. they have drop-off centers in the city like the Humane Society or the Pemina Animal Clinic. So there's different drop-offs you can bring them to to get them to the hospital if they are actually injured. So uh, you and I have had the conversation about the research that they've done on Corvids and their incredible memory, their ability to remember a human face. There is research from 2014 that suggests that zebra finches communicate differently while under the influence leading to experts to suggest they actually slur their speech while intoxicated. They do. Their singing would be like that typical friend we all have, that when they're drunk, they want to get close and sing these crazy songs, and that's what these pitches do. Their, their singing is actually totally out of tune, not even a normal song they sing. <laughs> so they definitely are just going through the, the drunken, I don't know what I'm doing phase. So it's just like a Saturday night after a social at my house back in the 1990s and everybody's <laughs> singing, uh, can't stop believing or don't stop believing out of tune. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's exactly it. Well, the, so, and th- Yeah, this does happen around the world too. Like in Africa, they have problems there with the mammals eating uh, fermented berries and they get drunk. So it, it does happen all over the world in different ways to different animals, but birds are the most common. Well, I want to just give so. a quick shout out to the Gilbert Police Department in Minnesota. They said that the 
The police force there is asking that residents watch out for, quote, any other birds after midnight with Taco Bell items or (laughs) (laughs) angry birds laughing and giggling uncontrollably and appearing to be happy. So of all the things I thought we wouldn't talk about today, I did not put drunk birds on the list, Greg. Like Never it. mind with Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry Versluis, the proprietor of the Preferred Perch for two decades, sixteen oh five. Have I still got that uh, address correct? Oh, four. oh so close, so sixteen oh four. All those yeah, years on talk to the experts together, Sherry. Uh, yes, we, we we care for you very much around here. Thanks for lending your voice to this uh, humorous but serious story all at once. Yes, thanks for the chat, you guys. You have a lovely day. Soak your turkey in the wine, and this is what happens, or the other way around. We all have to be careful of over-imbiting. There you go. There you go. Hey, something that uh, you and I... And I think a lot of us talking about, and that's distracted driving. We all know we're not supposed to pick up our phone to text or talk while driving. But what should you do when people or when you're the passenger in the car and the driver starts texting and driving? Well, a growing group of people are asking the driver to just put the phone down. Many people hitting the roads this weekend for the holiday, uh, Thanksgiving Monday, of course. Then they're going to be driving, and we've been talking a lot about texting and driving and that impact that's having on people's habits. But an interesting survey uh, that was done by Travelers Canada, and joining me on the phone now is Jordan Solway from Travelers Canada. And it, it talked a bit about, you know, millennials are on their phones all the time, Jordan, but it sounds like they're increasingly not happy with what they see when it comes to distracted driving. Um, our survey found, interestingly, that millennials um, are the generation that's actually taking the lead when it comes to voicing their concerns about distracted driving as passengers while in a car. Um, with a participation of 59%, um, they've indicated that um, they, um, they're, they're going to vote with their feet when, uh, when someone is texting while driving and they're a passenger. And this is the highest participation of any uh, age segment in the Canadian poll we did. The results actually showed 59% of millennials have asked a driver, like say a taxi driver or a friend, to stop using their phone, right, while driving? Precisely. That's what I meant by the participation rate. 59% are saying stop or, uh, you know, they're going to get out effectively. My kids are on me all the time. Even if I attempt to reach for the phone, they will operate the phone for me, Jordan, when we're in the car. If, you know, there's something that the a program that maybe they want to hear, some music that they want to hear. They won't even allow me to touch it. And they're 12. So th- they are getting the message. It's sort of like when we were kids and we told our parents about recycling for the very first time. No, I, I totally agree. I have a 13-year-old and he has the same reaction. He gets very upset if I even look at my phone and insists that um, he'll get out. So it's, uh, it clearly is having an influence on, on the hearts and minds of the younger generation. I know that surveys don't always get into the why, but if you could, I mean, do you think that has something to do with the idea that because they grew up with it more so than us? So, so my, so I'm in my forties, I'm 41 and I very consciously try not to use my phone or don't use my phone, sorry, while driving, but because it, it's still newer, um, it's not as habitual in, in, in sense of being ingrained to not use it. Whereas the next generation and in the millennials may be growing up with this technology and therefore are all more aware of the dangers of it. 
Yeah, so I think that's a fair point. I think there's also been, and we're sort of we're a part of this, trying to create um, greater public awareness and understanding of not only there's benefits clearly with technology, but there's also um, there's exposures and there's risks that people have to understand. Um, I should point out that the same poll found that Canadian drivers ages 18 to 54 um, are more likely than those ages 55 plus to admit to answering or making communications while driving. And so that finding also flags another uh, concern, which is, uh, you know, although they are um, indicating displeasure when they're the passenger and someone's doing it, they themselves are, are doing it when they're driving. It's sort of like the survey where police will tell us that 60% of all drivers are using their devices, and I'm just throwing that number out, yet 30% will, only 30% will admit to doing it. There, there's a, not a, a, a correlation there that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. And I think part of the issue is people, um, when you're driving, you don't understand how significant a distraction it is um, when you're using a device. And even using hands-free has an impact on your ability to concentrate um, the cognitive aspect of driving a vehicle, which is a fairly complicated task that we engage in daily. I think it's a great conversation to have on this Thanksgiving Monday because people will be getting together with their families. I know a lot of people did their big meal yesterday and this might have been a topic of discussion. Maybe it'll be one for today. And I think the other side of it, Jordan, and sometimes doesn't get enough attention, uh, is the fact that quite often we're guilty of texting someone or calling someone even though we know without question, based on the time of the day or arrangements that you've made or knowing where they are in their schedule, we are conscientiously texting and calling people on their phones while we know they're driving. Yes, I agree with that. And actually, there's a court in New Jersey that also agrees with that, which found that there actually is a what lawyers would call a duty of care. If you send a text to someone who you know is driving and with the additional qualification that um, you know that they're going to read it, likely read it while they're driving, you could have liability to a third party if they get into an accident and as a result of distracted driving. So it's following a very similar trajectory is um, impaired driving where the focus was is it should be initially on the driver and it's also moved to the establishments that overserve individuals who get behind the wheel. So if you facilitate or you um, aid and aid someone's uh, distracted driving, you could have civil liability. But I want to ask you about the technology companies and the providers, the service providers. What responsibility do they have to start implementing and promoting the technology that's either available or that could be made available in order to help us all break this habit that if I'm being honest, they helped create back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and we had a whole decade where this was not against the law. No, that that's a fair point. And I think that, um, as I said before, technology is a great enabler of many things, right? It's to make our lives easier. The ability to communicate in real time can be incredibly powerful. Um, there are applications available. Um, my own experience has been with my iPhone is that there is a do not disturb function, which is actually um, directed at this specific issue. It allows the phone to be turned off from acknowledging any calls or any uh, texts or emails so that you you effectively, the sender, um, gets a do not disturb or or an indication that you are are tied up and unable to answer. And that removes the impetus because part of this is psychological. We feel this this need, and this is what um, Dr. Caird actually talked about 
is that we feel when we get a text and we get an email that there's an obligation to respond. We want to look at it immediately. So take away the um, take away the opportunity. So there's no um, there's no the urge isn't satisfied. But the technology is emerging. As I said, there are apps that not only not only can sense when the vehicle is in motion, they can shut off the function so that it's it's done instantaneously and automatically. And I think some auto manufacturers are even starting to incorporate this into their vehicle design to remove the amount of distracting aspects of the cockpit, right? Because there's so much technology now that's available in vehicles. Jordan, we can't thank you enough for being patient with us and making sure this happened today. Uh, Much appreciated. No, thank you and have a great Thanksgiving. From the travelers, that's Jordan Solway joining us on this Thanksgiving Monday. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.